Well, 50 years or so ago, students in the University of Edinburgh, Christian students, had a mission to the university, and they called it Answer. Answer Week. And then the student newspaper put in a cartoon. And in the cartoon, it simply said this, what is the question? And you know, for many, many years as Christians, a lot of us have been confidently giving answers to questions that people aren't asking. And we've done that in various ways. We've assumed that people are interested in our message. We've assumed that people know what we're talking about. But in more recent years, and and recent years including decades, people have been a little bit more savvy about that and have tried to raise questions. For example, street theatre, you might recognise one or two characters on the street street theatre in the high street at Christmas time to raise uh, awareness of something that caused people to ask questions. Perhaps some of you have seen or participated in sketchboard presentations where letters are just painted on a board and a message comes through. People's attention is attracted and they start to ask uh, questions. How many of you went on March for Jesus in those years up to the uh, time of the millennium? Well, it's a dying generation. Obviously, there's not many of us uh, left. Flash mobs is a way of gaining attention. This guy, Chris Duffett, is a street evangelist. He does crazy things like putting a settee in the, uh, the high street and inviting people to come and sit on it and talk with him. Or he offers free hugs, or he lays out a red carpet. And when people say, what's the red carpet for? He says, the king's coming. And the king is Jesus. One of the reasons I'm promoting the film The Shack is because I believe the film The Shack raises answers to questions that people are asking. And those questions are questions about how can I forgive someone who's wronged me? Or if there is a God, how can he be a good God if terrible things are happening in the world? So here's a film which is addressing those sort of issues. By the way, you've had a little leaflet on the way in, hopefully, which says the shack is here in Bridge North from the 23rd of this month. Even the man in the cinema doesn't know the showtimes yet and mightn't know them till a week tomorrow. But uh, in one sense, our reputation hangs on whether we show up or not at the Majestic for this particular film because the guy's got the impression we're interested. If we don't show up, we let ourselves down and possibly uh, bring the Lord's name into disrepute. But that's a different uh, thing. Now, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which is what we're talking about uh, this morning, starts with the question people are asking. People have seen 120 people emerging from a room and they're praising God and some of them appear to be drunk. Sometimes, as I've been studying this this week, I've thought sometimes we overplay the drunken bit because it says some of them said they're drunk. A lot of them had attention to what Peter and the others were doing because they were speaking out. 
speaking out praise to God, and people heard them speaking out praise to God in their own languages. It's early in the morning in Jerusalem. The city's packed with pilgrims for the Pentecost celebrations. Up on Mount Zion, 120 people spill out from an upper room. It's adjacent to the tomb of David, and they start praising God noisily. But the specific thing that catches their attention is this. Pilgrims from around the Mediterranean world hear these people praising God, not in the expected Aramaic, but in their own native languages, Spaniards in Spanish, Italians in Latin, Greeks in Greek, various African dialects, Arabs in Arabic. How do these ordinary-looking, indeed rough-looking people, all hicks from the sticks in Galilee, know so many different languages among them? What's going on? And Peter takes charge of the situation. Listen up, let me tell you what's happening. Yes, it's Peter, it's the one who denied that he knew Jesus barely two months and 200 yards away at the high priest's house. Peter, who like the other disciples, had made themselves scarce at the crucifixion. Peter was now emboldened to address the crowds. He'd not only met the risen Christ on several occasions, he'd been there when Jesus had said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. Peter feels bold enough to witness to the crowds and he proceeds to preach an impromptu sermon. No preparation. No prior notice of the question, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter is ready. Later, Peter's going to write these words, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks eloquently, he speaks coherently, convincingly, with no time for preparation. This wasn't a blue Peter sermon, one he prepared earlier. This was impromptu. And in verse 16 of the passage which Tina read, Peter explains the phenomenon. This is what, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. Here's a reminder to take biblical prophecies seriously. Peter also draws heavily on what David said about the Messiah, highly topical because if tradition is to be believed, the site of the upper room was located near the tomb of David. This is what Joel, who lived 800 years BC, prophesied in the last days. One writer says for the last days we could just as well say from now on because with the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit, a new age had dawned, the last days. So we're now living in the last days. And from time to time, people get excited about the proximity of Christ's return, claiming that specific events fulfill this prophecy or that. And although speculation is very interesting, there's sometimes a danger of being sidetracked from the heart of Christian mission. We're going to see in a few moments from Peter's sermon that the heart of Christian mission in the power of the Spirit is the call to repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Joel prophesied a number of things which would happen in the last days. For example, the sun would be turned to darkness, the moon would be turned to blood. These didn't all come to pass on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. But the last days were inaugurated then. The last days started 2,000 years ago and will continue until Christ's return. Peter describes Christ's return as the great and glorious day of the Lord. These are the days we're living in, the last days. 
But which specific parts of Joel's prophecy was Peter claiming had now been fulfilled? I think there are two things. He's saying God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is poured out and is released and is now available to all categories of people, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're men, whether you're women, whether you're servants, whether you're well-to-do. In the video which Mark shared with us last Sunday, we saw how until this time in history, the Holy Spirit had inspired particular people, individuals at particular times for particular purposes, but now, but now in these last days, the days in which we too are living, the Holy Spirit is available to all categories of people and is enabling prophecy. Secondly, this is so exciting. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Two aspects of Joel's prophecy, 800 years old at the time that uh, Peter said it was fulfilled, 2,800 years ago from now or something like that, but two great things. God's Spirit is available to each one of us, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What was the theme of Peter's Pentecost sermon? It was Jesus. And there's a sense in which Jesus should be the theme of every Christian sermon. Just to rehearse some of what he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The focus is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, accredited by God. Accredited by his miracles, wonders, and signs. Even his enemies saw his miracles. Do you remember when a man born blind was healed at the pool of Siloam? The Pharisees could not dispute that the miracle had taken place. Their argument was more theological. By whose authority did he do this? In other words, how dare he? heal a blind man. But they couldn't dispute that a blind man had been healed. They couldn't dispute the others of his miracles. Jesus of Nazareth accredited by God by his death. Peter's suggesting this was no accident. It was no mistake. It was no defeat. This was God's deliberate intention. Isaiah 53 verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. So who killed Jesus Christ? Technically, it was the Romans. They did the job with the hammers and the nails and the cross. Pilate gave the word. Roman soldiers carried out the deed. Intentionally, it was the Jewish religious leaders. They plotted to get rid of Jesus. But morally, every person who sinned, whether Jew or Gentile, Peter's addressing not only fellow Jews, but everyone living in Jerusalem. That would include Gentiles. That includes us. Each one of our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth accredited by God through his resurrection. Peter says we are witnesses freeing him from the agony of death. This was no play acting. This was no piece of drama. This was no mere passion play. 
It was impossible for death to hold Jesus. Why? Because he was innocent of blame. Because there was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. And it's in this context that Peter makes reference to Psalm 16, a Psalm of David. David, whose tomb was probably in sight as Peter spoke. Don't make the mistake of thinking that David was speaking about himself. There's his tomb. No, he was speaking about Christ. He was speaking about the Messiah. And it's Jesus of Nazareth who's just been accredited as Messiah because he rose from the dead. And by his exaltation, verse 33, Peter and his companions were there when Jesus ascended into heaven before their very eyes. They'd heard the angels say, don't stand there gawping. This same Jesus who you see ascending into heaven will return in a similar way. It's effectively a very simple message. But it's a message that was effective. Peter draws his conclusion about Jesus in these words. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And before Peter's had the opportunity to make any invitation or to exhort anyone to any change of behavior or allegiance, the crowd shout out to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? They are cut to the heart. This is deep conviction. This is not merely intellectual assent. And here is Peter's answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Repent. Literally, it means think again. Some years ago, when visiting friends in Athens, as we passed through some roadworks, I saw a road sign painted on a rock face, and it said this, and I knew a little bit of Greek. And I recognized the word. It says, me metanoi iti. Me metanoi iti. I recognize metanoiety. I thought that's a Bible word. That's the Bible word that says repent. And here it was, an ordinary word in an Athens road sign painted on the rock. Do not turn around. Do not go in the opposite direction. No, you turn. Repent. Make a U-turn. Repent. Think again. Repent. Change direction from the direction that you've been living your life up until this point. Turn around, make a brand new start. And be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Notice Peter sees baptism as part of the normal Christian birth package. Make a brand new start. Symbolically, wash away your sin. Now, baptism isn't something to aspire to. Sometimes we make it feel as if it is. I'm not quite ready yet. Baptism is an initiation rite. In the New Testament, baptism takes place at the beginning of the Christian life. In the New Testament, an unbaptized Christian is an anomaly. And here, according to Peter, on the day of Pentecost is the consequence of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a limited promise. It's for all who the Lord will call. And some of you are saying, hey, John, wait a minute. Are you actually suggesting that the gift of the Holy Spirit is conditional on being baptized? No, I'm not saying that, but why take risks? 
If God's laid out his terms in scripture, what right have we got to negotiate our own or to assume that we are a special case? Peter has answered the question, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. But he's not quite finished. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Why a warning? Bill Shankly, the famous manager of Liverpool Football Club, is quoted as saying, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I can assure you it is much, much more important than that. <laughs> and here's Peter's warning. Salvation through Jesus is even more important than football. It's not a hobby, it's not simply a lifestyle choice. It determines how and where and who with we will spend eternity. So Peter warns the people. Unless you repent, unless you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit, you are in dire straits. We don't like so much warning people. And he doesn't simply warn them, he pleads with them. Here's a word we don't like to use, plead, but Carol used it when she was asking people to come and listen to John Nuttall next week. She said, I'm pleading with you. But when it comes to the gospel, we somehow, we hold back on the pleading. We've almost got it into our psyche. The plead is what you do when your argument is weak. Come on, you know it makes sense. Come on, make me happy, do what I say. But Peter, who's used a strong and logical argument, doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop pleading. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What does that mean? Ghetto-like separation from unbelievers? Surely not. Jesus left his disciples in the world, but not of the world. If our mission is to make disciples of all nations, we need to be in amongst them. You've got to be in it to win it. And later in his letters, Peter describes believers as aliens and strangers who do good stuff among the pagans. In Old Testament times, Rahab, the Jericho, wall, Jericho city wall prostitute, realized that her people were going to be defeated by Israel, so she threw her lot in with Joshua's people so she may be saved. And here's the same principle. Our world is under God's judgment and we have the opportunity to save ourselves by repentance. This is serious business. Why would we want to do this? Why would we not want to do this? Oh, Peter, you were doing so well. You had the people with you and now you've blown it. This talk about judgment, this warning, this pleading, I wonder if we become too nice in our presentation of the gospel message. Have we been too afraid of causing offense? Have we watered down the gospel to make it more palatable? Let me ask those of you who follow Jesus today, do you hold back from throwing a life belt to a drowning man for fear of offending him by implying that he's in deep water? Of course not. Do you neglect to warn people of the dangers of going too near the cliff edge? Of course not. So why would we not warn of the dangers of an eternity without Christ? Do you seek to persuade people to experience the joy you found in a new phone, a new sport, a new singer, a new football team? 
Or do you adopt a take it or leave it attitude? I have got this fantastic smartphone. It does this, it does that, and does the other. But if you're happy with your brick, you just keep it. It's okay. No, we try to persuade people to do the things that cause us joy and pleasure. So why do we give the impression that Christian faith is a matter of personal preference? Plead with your friends to follow Christ. Peter answered the question he presented Christ, he warned, he pleaded, and then there was a great response to Peter's sermon. Those who accepted the message were baptized, they didn't hang about. 3,000 were added to their number that day. It almost beggars belief. 3,000 people responded positively to that message. How did it happen? Number one, an incident raised a question to which Jesus is the answer. Number two, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, was prepared to give an answer. Number three, the people asked what they should do. Number four, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Number five, Peter warns and pleads with the people to take this action. Number six, 3,000 people are baptized and added to their number. Now, you've heard this message this morning. You've heard it as Tina read. You've heard it as I've preached. You've heard this message. What are you going to do? Let me make some suggestions. If you're already a Christian, will you set out in your life by your very living, by the things you say, to raise questions to which Jesus is the answer? Will you personally be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you? Peter had this deep inside him. It all came out on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't prepared. It wasn't one I prepared earlier. But are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you sufficiently au fait with your faith to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you? And will you be bold enough to warn people of their danger and to plead with them to accept Christ? And if you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet repented, turned a new way, changed direction, trusted Christ, received the Holy Spirit, will you consider seriously what Peter has said? God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord is the highest name that it's possible to give. That's the name that equates with God in the Bible, Lord. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Will you repent? Will you start a new direction with Jesus? Will you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? This is the most important decision you will ever make. More important than the way you voted on Thursday. More important than your choice of a marriage partner. More important than your choice of a career. This choice has eternal consequences and the benefits are out of this world. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that on the day of Pentecost that you set up the phenomenon, you set up the circumstances that caused people to ask the question, what's going on? Thank you that Peter was ready to give an answer to that and Thank you that he was ready to point to Jesus. Thank you that he was ready not only to point to Jesus and to answer the question, but what shall we do? 
but he was ready to warn people and plead with them. For those of us who know you, Lord Jesus, today, help us to be ready like Peter. Help us to be ready and bold in giving answers to the questions to which Jesus is the answer. But help us also to set up those questions by the way in which we live our life. Not, not in a sort of false way, but may our lives, may our life together as a, a group of people here, as your church be the kind and quality of life that raises questions. See, see those people, how they love one another. See those people, how they get, this is unusual. What's going on? Help us to be part of that, Father. And Father, I want to pray very particularly this morning for those who haven't yet received Jesus. Oh yes, intellectually, we acknowledge that Jesus is special. Intellectually, we recognize that Jesus died. Intellectually, we possibly even recognize that he died for us and that he rose again. Intellectually, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is available, but somehow we haven't acted upon it. And Father, I pray that just as those people were cut to the heart 2,000 years ago and ready to respond to the message, I pray, Father, that across this congregation this morning, people will be cut to the heart. That your spirit will convict so much that people are ready to respond and to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus from this moment on. Father, may these next few moments that we share together in worship and in fellowship be sacred moments, may they be moments that uh, we won't waste. I just pray, Father, that uh, you would enable people to make the decision of their lives today as they respond to Jesus and are drawn to him as they receive your spirit enter your family and receive a new hope and I pray this in Jesus name Amen